0: This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Landmine. Okay, folks, back here with the long-coveted, sought-after podcast with Jonathan Christ Tompkins. How are you doing? I'm doing well. JKT, as they call you. Uh,
1: yes, that's one of the things that is said. I've been
0: trying to get this, we've been trying to do this podcast for, I would say, over a year, maybe, maybe longer.
1: That's true. Yeah, you're persistent, which is a virtue.
0: I feel like you were, at first, hesitant, or, or maybe just cautionary no. But over time, you finally said, "All right, just stop asking me."
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, you 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 wore me down for sure. Uh, I think it was more more agnostic and uncertain. Those were the are uh, the words that I'd used to describe my initial take. And but I'm now a subscriber to your podcast, really? and, and very I love it.
0: Well, not to give you a big head, but many people I've had several people be like, "You got to get JKT."
1: Oh, like, really? You, you've been oh, requested, boy. okay,
0: by, by the audience. Uh, so here we are. So I want to talk about a lot. There's a lot to talk about, but I want to go back in time a little bit because we first met in 2012 in, I believe, New Sagaya, right? New Sagaya, the deli. You were running for house against uh, Bill Thomas, right? Yeah. Who's still Bill around. Thomas.
1: Working for the governor. He's
0: my neighbor of the Driftwood. He was in the Driftwood when he was in the legislature, too, by all accounts. He's 101. I'm 102. I'm, I'm asking them to like make that the landfill suite. Mm-hmm. I'm working on that. Yeah. Um, but you were running against him. You get him. like a little plaque on the door. I haven't told him I'd pay for it. I was like, I'll cover it. Yeah. It's it's a maybe. What did they say? He didn't say no. Okay. So I'm I'm working that's, I'm working that. Good. Yeah. So I I heard about you because I was like, who's running for the legislature? I was running for the Senate. I first ran for the House and switched, and then a lot of people were talking about you. But you were you know Sitka, far away from Anchorage, but you were in Anchorage, and we connected. And we had a, a coffee deal over at Nusagaya. Yeah, and I remember being like, "Kind of, man, this. I want. I want to be the young guy running for office."
1: <laughs> no, I, I I distinctly remember that. I forget how we how think, connected. Maybe you reached out. Or I think I reached out to you because
0: yeah. I I knew you were young. You were both. You're thirty two now. Yeah. So I'm thirty six. So back then you were twenty three. F- three. Yeah. And I would have been twenty seven. Yeah. And, and you would and we talked about this before we started, you had almost finished Yale, right? Yeah. You were like very close to finishing Yale. I was
1: half, uh, so it's a little complicated. Um, Yeah, I'd I'd started school in 2008, and then I took a semester off to do some research, so I was kind of staggered off a semester, Um, and so I made the decision to kind of opt out of the college track in May, 2012 which was you know normally when most of my classmates were about to graduate but I because I had taken that semester off I was staggered a semester later so I would have got graduated December 2012 so I dropped out to go home and run for office. So what what inspired you to I mean you're in school you're I mean
0: were you just watching things or did you see like because Bill, Bill had I forget. Did he not do... Did he not... He didn't do very well. The, he barely won the previous time. Is that right?
1: No, he was... He he barely got elected when he first ran, which was, I think, 2004. Um, it was a really close election. Uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the guy in Haynes who was the Democrat, but I think it was 100 votes, plus or minus, that Bill won that election. But then every election after... Basically, once he was an incumbent, he was winning with like 60 to 70% of and, the vote. And he was co chair of finance at one point, wasn't he? He was co chair of finance for one or maybe more than one term. He was co chair of finance going into the 2012 election. So, and so, big, big spot for the legislature. Big spot. And this was during the oil boom and aces and just this gusher of oil money coming in. So, the finance committee actually had a lot of loot to, to,
0: attend to i've heard stories about when the revenue forecasts come out people you know back in the day run down to
1: the bars get come back to the Capitol. we all got like another million yeah per office <laughs> yeah i don't know what it was like uh, in that particular time but um he had secured a lot of capital projects in southeast alaska and the district um as co-chair so, as, as had Burt. so he's a republican Repub- a republican you're a democrat why did you like i mean
0: what made you decide to run?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because when a, you when
0: you got in, a lot of people were like, I remember that distinctly. They were like, oh, this young kid, like, whatever. You know, it wasn't even, I don't think a lot of folks in Anchorage at least took you seriously. They were like, oh, whatever. It's like he's co-chair of finance, Bill Thomas.
1: Yeah, and probably not an unreasonable reaction. Um, uh, I, I mean, to be honest, when I was going to college, I was not super dialed on Alaska politics. I'd gotten interested in politics, especially elections, really, really young when I was 13, 14. And I mean, obsessively interested. I memorized when, the, when all, the rest, when the rest of us are having our first beer. Maybe, <laughs> um, Yeah, no, I was, you know, I memorized all 50 attorneys general and secretaries of state and state level, like all, and of course all the governors and U S senators, I was like very, very like, you know, knew the political dynasties in every state, like the La Follette's and mm-hmm. Wisconsin and the Sununu's in New Hampshire. And I was just like, I it was like initially very baseball focused and, for some reason, like I, I think some of the same parts of the brain that activate with like baseball and baseball statistics do with electoral politics. And were your parents in politics? No, never. Were um, they like, what's wrong? What's wrong they, with you? More or less. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, know? I have a, I have a tendency to just get really interested in things and like very disparate subject matter. Um, so when I was in middle school, electoral politics just really kind of took me by storm. So I, i gotten really politically interested and to some extent involved, um, with a couple of campaigns, including a presidential campaign when I was really young, that was like incredibly formative experiences. But um, through college, I mean, I continued to follow national politics to some extent, but I kind of like stepped off the gas on Alaska stuff. So to answer your question, like, why did I run for office? Especially like this guy who's bringing home, bringing home the bacon for Southeast Alaska. It wasn't a decision that was made lightly or reflexively. Um, It never had crossed my mind period. And I never really thought I would run for elected office. I thought if I did politics, it'd be more in a strategist or staffer role policy kind of stuff, which is still, to be honest, probably like my, uh, like that's my ideal. I mean, yeah, I, I enjoy that stuff more than the, you know, uh, speechifying and posturing and stuff. Um, but, um, two different people called me, it was like probably May 20th or so. And they called me on the same day. So so right before the deadline. Yeah. Right before the deadline. And, um, neither of them knew the other. So it was just a coincidence, but I got these two recruitment calls on the same day, one from a person in Anchorage, one from a person in Haynes, who had been the coach of a debate team that I had competed against as a high schooler. And he just always sort of like kept tabs on me since then. Um, and they're just like, we really think there needs to be a challenger to Bill Thomas. We can't find anybody with a pulse who will, who will do it. Like, what do you think about it? So Bill had at that point no Democratic challenger. Correct. Nobody was filed and nobody was... Well, were they asking it. you to run to run or were they asking you to be a placeholder? They were asking me to run to run, but I mean, I, I don't think with any, you know frankly, expectation that I would win or it'd be a competitive race. Um, but uh, I hadn't really thought about it, so I... Uh, I to be honest, I was like kind of getting old on college and feeling like a little bit ready to move on or do something else. And so, but you're so close to graduating, semester away. But I was, yeah, I was just as as kind of feeling a little bit old, um, for undergrad scene, and just kind of wanted to be in the real world. And just fuck it, I forget <laughs> about it. <you> know. <laughs> yeah, six I months. Mean, <laughs> I mean, I think like all equal, I would have like just you know. Written off the calls, but I was just sort of in a mental place where I was like, mm, I'll like, I'll I'll look into this. So I looked into Bill's background and I mean, there were a lot of, I mean, he established the Renewable Energy Fund. There's a lot of things I admired about his legislative tenure. Um, but... At the time, he had voted for, I think it was House Bill 110, which was the... Oil tax? Is the predecessor to SB 21. Mm-hmm. And I felt very, very strongly sort of given what I knew at the time about that issue. And that was kind of a black and white issue I remember for all the
0: RDC and the chamber at the time, all the... I started working for this IT company in 2010. Mm-hmm. So I started going to all these like networking events all the time. And for a long time, like HB 110 was like yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I still remember like when you said that. I right away I go back to it because it right, was right, right. It was like yeah. ubiquitous all over politics or business. Um, yeah, it was, it was the a first. Big to- it was away. big. It was Taxes. a big topic. Yeah, it, yeah. T- that was basically the right of the aces, right?
1: Right, right. And it, I, if I remember correctly, it passed the House, which was Chenault was Speaker, and then it died in the Senate. I think Ban and, mm-hmm. and Senate Resources probably. And that's what happened in twelve. Was to, not, not to distract from your story, but. The next year, it barely passed
0: the SB twenty one eleven to nine. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, I ran in 12, I lost, you know, to Liesel. But I'd always remember thinking, man, if one, because I was concerned with spending back, that was my whole thing with spending, we're spending yeah. too much. And I kept thinking, if one person out of the 11, any one of them, could have gotten huge spending concessions, which we've already seen, the budget has been cut down by billions since then. Yeah. But it took a long time. Yeah. And I've always gone back and said,
1: man, I can't, nobody just really cared about the spending back then. I know. It's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Uh I, I mean I mean there's a lot of things those legislators did that were great in terms of socking away the sixteen billion and the SBR and CBR mm-hmm. but I think more, ideally more a lot more could have been done in terms of fiscal restraint, not spending, saving instead. So um, so when you filed um, did you know Bill? I mean, did you? No, so I mean, HB 110 was like the catalyzing issue. If he had voted no on HB 110, I don't think I would have run against him. Have you ever told him that right now? Oh yeah, the whole campaign was about it. And frankly, that's probably the reason he lost. Wow, cuz I remember when you won. And I I, I mean, I remember I, I
0: remember a lot of people were like cuz you know, in Anchorage, we don't really follow the south. I mean, I do a little more now because I've been down here, but even now it's like, you know, you, you kind of know like Burt Stedman mm-hmm. and you and you're kind of familiar, but I don't know the. I'm not don't live in those places. I don't really know. Yeah, and I think a lot of people were pretty surprised when you beat Bill. It was like, what's going on?
1: Well, there, so there was. Did the, the district
0: change much? Because I was a redistricting. Th-
1: there was there was I think like 50 percent of the district was new to him. So that probably helped you a little bit. Yeah, that or hurt him a little bit. Right. That I think that's true. And so I mean, it's the oil issue, which just hammered that endlessly because that's what i cared about passionately and i felt that it was, he was out of line with where the district was and i think i was right on that point point. and um then i just shoe leather I was just like in villages in communities door to door basically every day and night from end of june until election day so unlike anchorage or fairbanks
0: you're on boats and planes and ferries right all the all those things yeah yeah like, descri-
1: I, describe your district right now District is, I mean, depending on how you count, 15 to 20 different communities in Southeast Alaska, every single one of which is on an island, most of which are on different islands. So it's... So Sitka's the big one. is the big one. Petersburg, there's about 6,000 people on Prince of Wales Island. And there's a road system on POW, so you can drive from community to community there. Uh Um, That's like Cake and... Cake's on not on POW, it's on... um, different island but uh what's up, um what's up? prince of Wales? craig kawak yeah. Cove, Kloak. hollis heidelberg uh whale pass edna bay well technically a different island port protection point baker uh so when you're going me. to these places are you taking boats mostly like ferries are you flying or a lot of ferries <laughs> a lot of float planes um i've caught rides with private pilots i've caught rides on fishing boats i've uh, I, I just got a sort of new skiff set up, um, two years ago and I'm starting to take my skiff to different mm-hmm. communities from Sitka. So, so at this di- point
0: people kind of know, like, I think you've been there eight years now. Well, yeah. Eight years. Yeah. So they probably know you a little more. Than yeah. Before. Yeah. A
1: little bit more. Um, in, in the district I represent also had that sort of weird mid cycle redistricting in 2014 because mm-hmm. it was deemed a gerrymandered district, which it was, um, basically. So I picked up Petersburg. And then I lost Haynes and Metlakahtla and I picked up part of Prince Wales Island. So there was a little bit of a shift in 14 as well.
0: Did you have a, I'm trying to remember, did you have a big challenger in 14 or?
1: Yeah, it was, um, a gentleman by the name of Steven Samuelson out of Petersburg who ran and Petersburg was near the district. He was a native son of the community. Um, he raised a lot of, a lot of fun. So took it seriously. Um, it, it ended up being a not overly close margin. Um, but, um, but, yeah, definitely took that race didn't seriously. Didn't you not
0: have an opponent one time, or did you always have an opponent? Always have had an opponent. i trying to think.
1: I know Tuck in 14 didn't have
0: a op- yeah. primary or general.
1: Yeah, it seems kind of random sometimes. I mean, like, just looking at, you know, my side of the coin, it was like, yeah, <laughs> kind of on a lark that people called me, and I ended up filing. I mean, like, there's definitely a scenario out there where Bill would have been unopposed in 2012 and would have gotten reelected. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't have a primary, did he? He didn't
0: have a primary. No. So when you see he still works for the governor at Dunleavy now. So you see him around. He's doing, I mean, are you guys yeah, cool or? Yeah, everyone's a
1: while. And he was lobbying for Haynesboro mm-hmm. and a few other clients for a few years. Yeah, we're, you know, amicable in the hallway. I, you know, I don't know where exactly I, I stand in his, you know, personal book. But, um, yeah, I see him around and he's... He's a character. He, that Yes, good, good description. So you
0: won and you were, now you're kind of one of the most senior people in the house because there's so many new people. Yeah. But at the time you were like twenty four, right? Twenty three? You were twenty three. You were just brand I mean, it must have been and back then there was a lot more people like Chenault and um Kurt Olson. These guys were still around, right? They, these yeah, guys have yeah. been there a long time, Steve Thompson. Who's still there when you were elected? Just Steve Thompson and Chris Tuck and
1: Bryce Edgeman, I guess, right? Steve, Chris, Bryce, Neil. Neil Foster, yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. So you're you're kind of in the
0: house number five. Number five out yeah. of out of forty. Correct. And when you came in, you were number four, number forty. Yeah. I
1: mean. Well, the I mean, it's been fascinating watching the change. The, I I calculated it my first year because I felt so young and I looked like I was seventeen. I mean, I was like, I mean, still I think. Did, Did you
0: get the? Because Scott Kawasaki said when he first won, he was young, but he looked younger. Yeah. And people. I think he said Pam Varney one time, the old director of Ledge Affairs said he went to a, he went to the, I think the, uh-huh. the lounge or something. And she said, you know, excuse me, the, the staff, or it was a, it was like a training, it was a mm-hmm. legislator. And she goes, excuse me, the staff is like down the hall. And he's yeah. like, I'm, you know, and she's like, what? And he's like, I'm elected. And she's like, oh, oh, hi, hi.
1: <laughs> there, there were a couple, I mean, of course, totally innocent um, incidents where I was, you know, assumed to be an intern or a page or something or staffer. <laughs> oh um, which I, I mean, I thought it was it was kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that So was I was, was going to say is that I, I calculated the median age of the house when I got in and it was in the I think like mid 60s and the Senate was like the upper 60s. Yeah, so I did I that. Felt-
0: I did that once, too. And it was I remember
1: being Thinking, wow, it's really high. Yeah, super high. But and it's it's come down. I haven't run the numbers again, but I'm confident it's come down probably a decade more than that mm-hmm. since then. And it's both like younger Republicans and younger Democrats and Independents. So you're elected. still but you're still one of the younger. I think
0: Sarah Rasmussen's younger than you and David Nelson. David Nelson. He's 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 kind of like you now. Yeah. Same age, right? When you won.
1: Yeah, he he is or was 23 or 24. Yeah, we I think we we looked at like birthdays in election year and we're we're very like a couple months apart and so you were in the minority for four years mm-hmm. and then since you've been in the majority yeah
0: so you've kind of seen both yeah the the current i don't want to get too much into it but the current minority i mean there's kind of a a rift with with the house right now and this effective date and a lot of those minority members are new yes you know i mean like more than half and then the other ones are you know they've been two they were elected in 18 so most of them are brand new mm-hmm. or two years old where I think Steve Thompson and Kathy Tilton. I mean, Steve's been around a long time, but Kathy Tilton, I think, was elected in fourteen. Yeah. But when you that's were right. when you were in, a lot of those people had been around like already a long time in the minority.
1: Yeah. Beth Curtoula had been around over I think she was elected ninety eight or two thousand. She'd been there a decade plus. Tuck Kawasaki was in there, right? Kawasaki since oh four. Les Gera. Les Gara since two thousand or something like that. Yeah. A lot of old guard... So there was there was like plenty of, you know, passing of institutional knowledge, mentorship, all of that. Whereas what's happened in the back part of this decade in the Republican caucus, has just been almost almost literally complete turnover.
0: Yeah. So. Without getting too much into it, I mean, we're it's Friday. It sounds like something might be worked out for Monday, but still unclear from the speaker Stutes and um, Kathy Tilton, the minority leader. Yeah. Are, are you kind of hopeful or confident? Something's going to... I'm sure you're hopeful, but are you, are you confident or optimistic? Something's going
1: gonna... to... I wouldn't say confident, but I'm hopeful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, During the Walker time, there was a couple of these deals that got... The pink slips went out, or the layoff notices went out, and it got pretty close. But my sense was this this is this seems
1: a little different than those times. Mechanically, it's black and white different. So in the Walker... So in the first two years of Walker, I think this is right. We were in the minority. And then the next two years of Walker, we were in the majority. And then I've been in the majority for all of the first term of Dunleavy. And in the first term of Walker, we were in the minority. And the reason that we went to the brink on government shutdown was the CPR vote for liberating funds for the CBR for the operating budget and the negotiation. That's when there was still billions in there. Yeah. That's when there was billions and the CBR was basically subsidizing our budget deficit, which it still is to some extent. And, um, so like, yeah, very, very different. Whereas, I mean, like now the CBR vote has failed. We're not even really talking about. So wild that that's not even a conversation now over this effective date thing. But the two thing, the two things that are at hand now are the reverse sweep and the effective date, which, I said this on the floor on Wednesday. We never thought we never contemplated. It never occurred to us. We never had a conversation about withholding those votes because it just breaks stuff and hurts people and serves no productive purpose at all. Um, there's no like policy conversation around the effective date or the reverse sweep. It's just like, it's a bad thing to fail those votes. So we never thought about doing it. So I'm I'm like confused and bewildered about like why we're in this situation other than, you know, like folks just looked at, you know, the list of majority vote thresholds like, Oh, here's some super near majority votes. And in theory we can fail them. And in theory that gives us leverage. But I, I like I personally sort of refused to negotiate from that premise hmm. because it there's there's not any pol- like there's a total conversation about the three quarters vote for funds out of the CBR totally very appropriate but effective date and reverse sweep absolutely off the table and it makes no sense.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things they've said well one of the things they've said is they aren't you know being heard but I think the problem is they they don't really have one thing it's either the dividend or it's the three the constitutional amendment or some of them just might want to see it shut down I think a few of them uh, or it's it's something else so it's not. When you were in the minority, I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, but it seemed like there was usually one, there was a big thing mm-hmm. that you guys agreed on the program or some funding
1: for this or funding for that. But now it just seems kind of all over the map. Yeah. I mean, when we we're in the minority, we were generally advocating for more education funding or more ferry funding or like we had these specific programmatic asks and we we're just looking for money for these programs we believed in. Um, I have not heard a distilled, like, consensus coherent. This is what we want from the minority. I'm also not like in the conversations. That's Speaker Stutes and Leader Tilton who are having this conversation. So maybe that's happening, but I haven't heard that from the floor or elsewhere. And like in terms of being heard, like it's important to be heard. And I really, really believe in respecting the rights of the minority from when I was in the minority and now. And there's things that frankly still um, I strongly disagree with in terms of how the minority is treated in the process. But by failing the CBR vote, like, you know, that's the way you get heard. But this other stuff is just destructive. It just, that's, it it only poisons the water and the well. um, Long time ago, Miles Baker told me
0: that he, you know, he started coming down here and I think early 2000s, he was working for Senator Steadman. And he said, every year you think it can't get crazier. Like no way it can get, it always gets crazier. Like it always, Mm -hmm. something else happens that, no one thought about or contemplated. Yeah. And this time it's, you know, these these procedural things. Um, I want to ask you about the, uh, what is it, the um, intern program, the, oh, the fellows program. Yeah,
1: yeah, the fellows program.
0: That's something, uh, I didn't realize how many people have done that. It's a lot, isn't it? We're probably approaching 100. So describe what that is. You bring folks into the, le- younger people into the
1: legislature to spend some time not not the legislature so it's it's a it's a public service fellowship it's kind of like um but some, some of them are some of them working no I mean so, some of them after their fellowship have stayed in Alaska and gone on to do various things so there's a, a alum of the program who's a staffer in the legislature I think at least one um, right now but they're when they're actually doing the program they're with different. Nonprofit and public sector host organizations. Okay. So, um, you know, the Arts Council in Juneau here or Alaska Network for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault or uh, Alaska Trails Association. So they do a nine-month sort of a, like tour of duty and they all live together. So there's like a very rich like community living sense of cohort kind of experience. It's like an Alaska Peace Corps type. Yeah, it's like, like kind of a, like domestic version of Peace Corps, I so guess these I'd are say. folks from in state? they're both right, or is it- it's both? At this point, we're we're like thirty five, sixty five, Alaskan, non Alaskan. And you and you started this? I started in twenty fourteen. What got you? Why Why did you decide to? Well, a lot of it came out of um, going to school back east, and um, I loved Alaska, and I was bringing a lot of my classmates back to Sitka specifically in the summers because. pretty patriotic about Alaska and SICA in particular and um, was like setting them up just like organically, no program or structure for it with different summer opportunities, jobs, internships, etc. And people were having, like they were pumped they were having the summers of their lives and so I kept doing it, It was like this is working great, like keep doing it. And then after getting out of school it's like, well the whole like summer thing doesn't make sense because I'm not a student anymore. But Um, you know, everybody was looking for similar experiences after graduation. So it's like, I should create a program that facilitates that. So I started in 2014 and it was most, almost all Yale students that first year. Um, and then it's since broadened. How many per year? First year was like 10 or 12, and they were all in SICA, and at this point, we now have sites in Juneau and Anchorage, and we're expanding to Fairbanks next year, so there's going to be upwards of 30 students. In What's it
0: the called? The Alaska? Fellows program. Um, how did you get I mean, funding for this thing? It seems I'm always trying to do little projects, and it's always hard to get money. It's like, geez, if I had unlimited money, I could you could do a lot of
1: things, but... How did, you, how did you get the, fu- the funding for it? It's 100% earned revenue. Um, so actually, we, we got our first grant two years ago, but literally 100% of the funding has been... So like, well, I ran the program for free. I mean, I didn't pay myself. Um, well, I think I may pay myself like one or $2,000 <laughs> uh, for the first <laughs> like three or maybe four years. But basically, I just like, it was sweat equity because I thought it was you know, a good, good thing. And I wanted to like bring it into existence. And, um, uh, so like the costs of like rent for the houses that we're leasing and all the other program expenses, um, we just prorated it out to all the host organizations that were participating and, um, they paid the prorated costs. So, in order for, say, Alaska Trails Association or the Juno Arts Council or whatever organization participate, they pay basically the prorated real cost of the program. So, and they're getting somebody to to work with them or do do correct do stuff for them. Yeah, exactly. So they have to really like see and experience the value of the program, and you get like really great, talented, dynamic, driven young people. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't pay to participate. Mm-hmm. So. Which is good, I mean it keeps us like accountable in terms of delivering value through the program um do they get a like a stipend or yeah something, they get a something? stipend it's very sort of AmeriCorps esque uh-huh. and then we cover rent and living expenses didn't you I just heard this earlier I was talking to somebody did you start a college yeah 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 really um well it's it's not it's like a <laughs> shades of gray here, I guess, but um it's called outer coast and it's in Sika. Um, I outer actually, coast. Yeah. We had a board meeting this morning at eight o'clock actually. Um, Oh boy. It's early. <laughs> I don't like getting up early. You don't see me in the Capitol very
0: early, very
1: often. Right. Early. Right. I, uh, um, but, um, yeah, it's, it also started circa 2015. Um, and I ran it the first couple of years and now I'm on the board. So what, what
0: is, what's the mission or what's the...
1: It's going to be a, a two-year liberal arts college in Sitka. And so right now we're running a year-round post-secondary program um, with credit sponsored by Alaska Pacific University. And we'll probably open the doors for the college in probably two-ish years and get independent accreditation. But it's it's is like it, a, isn't it hard hard to do all this? I guess Trump did it, didn't he? Trump Trump. <laughs> Trump, <laughs> I, Trump you know, I'm going to take exception
0: with that. <laughs> I mean, what no, I'm saying it's like you have to get accreditation and you have to
1: hire professors and curriculum and, it's, and degree programs. I mean, this is not something huge undertaking. Yeah, no, it's uh, like we've got full time staff and we're raising a lot of money and we've got students. How many students do you have? So it's it's like a it's like a micro college. So the full enrollment is going to be 40 students. It's modeled after a really sort of idiosyncratic institution in um, uh, California called Deep Springs College, which is, it's like a two-year liberal arts college, and then students transfer to other schools for junior and senior year. But it's like a work-study school, so it's for free for the students, but they have to do, like, cook the meals and wash the dishes and, like, clean up their own, you know, bathrooms and be custodians cool. and all that stuff. And it's set on a working ranch as well. Um, but it's got a very, like, strong intellectual tradition. Um produced ambassadors. There's a congressman from New Jersey who's a Deep Springs alum. Um, I think Walter Isaacson, the Steve Jobs biographer, is a Deep Springs mm-hmm. alum. Um, super small, 30 students total at Deep Springs. It's been around for 103 or 104 years. So we're we're like very much inspired by and modeled after Deep Springs. We're at 40 students. There at 30 students. So this is not meant to be a loaded question,
0: but based on the last two things, the fellows program and the university I mean, do you feel like you've done more with that or in the <laughs> legislature? Cause I mean, I see a lot of people in the legislature for a long time and they don't do much.
1: I mean, <laughs> like nothing really happens. <laughs> it's, it's apples and oranges. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I think it's been very helpful and meaningful personally to have a lot of different irons in the fire, including like a lot of stuff that I've poured, you know, thousands of hours into outside the legislature, not the, it's been very remunerative, but it's been stuff that I've believed in. And I'm really excited to sort of see lifting off. Um, I mean the, I, I like the, I wouldn't stick around the legislature if I, you know, I felt like it was a waste of time or anything. I mean, I like, even though, it just seems like so much goes
0: into this every, every increasingly worse every time, every year. And it's like, it just,
1: seems to be a big fight I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but the stakes are so high and these questions will get resolved and I feel incredibly, uh, compelled to do what I can to sort of nudge the decisions that ultimately get made Mm -hmm. in the most responsible long-term direction. Have you, based on all these, all these, all these things you've done, you elected the legislature,
0: fellows program, the university, have you gone back to Yale and been like, Hey, can I get that degree real quick? (laughs) Uh, like, can we just go ahead and give me the extra credits? Uh, <laughs> wink, wink. And
1: kind of, I, I, yeah, You'd I think they would
0: like do that. I mean, that seems like a, don't people get honorary uh, uh, degrees all the time for uh, things? They're, they're not going
1: to do it. I, I mean, I think my first or second term I did. Yeah. I contact the administration, Dean's office is like, okay, like, you know, what would the concrete next steps be? Da, 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 da. da. But they're like, have very like, Couldn't you say like all these
0: things I've done, these are, earn, these earned me some credits no i gotta take
1: the classes and Can you do it on re- i mean do you want to do it do you want to get the degree or you don't really care? i mean i'm at this point it's like n- until the like absence of a degree becomes a obstacle to mm-hmm. doing something i really care about like at that point it's gonna like yeah it, i'm gonna go zero to one i'm gonna make make sure that that's this, this, put to bed. this reminds me
0: i told you before the podcast i read this book by ben sheehan he like he's like a political writer and he used to be I like or Die. He's kind of a comedian. He's on Bill Maher sometimes, but he wrote this book called O M G W T F. Does the Constitution actually say, like, a beginner's guide to the, it's really a fascinating book. It breaks down the whole thing. If you read it, you know it's very hard. It's like written in the seven, you know 18th century. It's like what is what do these words mean and and he breaks everything down in the history and all the you know the Bill of Rights and the Amendments and Madison and all just all these really fascinating little like you know before Prohibition there was like ten Walgreens. In, in the country, after Prohibition, there was like 3,000 Walgreens. And it was because one of the exceptions to Prohibition was if a doctor wrote you a script for alcohol. So Walgreens did really well
1: Uh huh. in Prohibition. It was like the original medical marijuana or something. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what yeah. was going yeah. on.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, so the reason I brought that up was the 27th Amendment, which, what the fuck is 27th Amendment, right? It's It's about the Congress can't raise their pay, you know, during they have to wait till the next Congress. I think we have rules like that here, right? You can't take a job where there's more money if you were working in the administration or a similar thing, right? It's
1: like a one year cooling off period, I think. Yeah. yeah. There's like yeah. an
0: emolument or so anyways, it's uh it's so fucking crazy because this dude was like nineteen in the 1970s. he was at the University of Texas and he was asked to write a paper on the Constitution. So he like goes to the library he's reading these books and he notices like when when Madison submitted the original plan and there was all these you know amendments the 10 became bill of rights there was several that didn't didn't get um, ratified and one of them was this amendment about pay the congress can't raise the pay in any given they have to wait till the next congress and he basically writes a paper and says what's his name i forget his name he wrote a paper and he was like well this this sucker is still alive well a few states ratified it but there was never a a timer on it there was never an expiration date on it so this sucker's still alive and you know we could probably get this thing passed and you got see. and he was like really pissed off that he got a C so he started contacting state legislatures and I think it took him 10 years and he finally found a friendly uh, voice in Colorado and I guess Colorado ended up passing it and then like it started this thing anyways the other state enough states ratified it and he goes back to the University of Texas, I think it's like twenty years later, and he's like, "I want my grade." Because he he went back originally, and she's like, "No, I'm giving you a C. and they changed it to an A. So in this case, I think you know that's you go back to the Yale, tell him, "Hey, I <laughs> I passed a bill over here," and the well, I just, you passed a bill, right? Have you passed any? I,
1: yeah, I passed a couple of bills. What
0: well, was the one you did? A was one you did
1: in my first term. There was a native languages bill that was. Right, but sort th- of a that was one that got some attention, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't there something else? What else did you? Um gosh. Uh this I mean we just did an Arter reauthorization bill. Um we did a bill for Heights Central Council and their ability to administer TAMF last legislature. Um TAMF, what's uh temporary food stamps basically. Arter is the Alaska Railroad Transfer Act, is that where no something else not me i think that's that chuck cop no I, yeah. Yeah, I just think of him with railroad legislation um so uh
0: what's the redistricting coming up here again are you paying attention to that because southeast seems like they've lost population anchorage has lost population mm-hmm. um have you had any idea
1: like thoughts or looked at the potential map changes Yeah, I mean, I thought through it a little bit. I don't think anything too radical has happened. Like, Southeast is going to lose a a fraction of a legislative district. I don't know, like 0.3 or something, which means we'll probably pick up Yakutat and maybe Cordova. Um, But the, the distribution of population within the region, even if you include Yakutat and possibly Cordova, I don't think there's any overly nefarious way to kind of slice and dice mm-hmm. up the region so um, if Cordova goes
0: I was told that could affect Louise. Kodiak, you, Louis Stewart's yeah. Kodiak and maybe that might go in with you know near Dillingham where Brace Edgeman is and I mean there's all these different I guess we'll, we'll see when the maps come out but I mean there's all right. these people kind of projecting how, how things might might change and you know in 2012 I was running that year and it was frustrating because we didn't know where the maps were going to be until like May mm-hmm um, but Anchorage pe- some people have said, Oh, Anchorage isn't going to change that much. I mean, I don't know, but Anchorage changed pretty significantly in 2012 because I switched senators mm-hmm. and I, I, half my district totally changed Senate district. Yeah. Um, and other, others did too. So I know it's population and the census and you know, all these, these rules on how you can draw the lines, but I, um, I'm really going to be interested to see when these maps come out and it's not going to be until the end of the year, I think with the census yeah. data data being delayed.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm really curious. I mean, there's gonna be a whole domino effect. Like, I I could see that that Gulf Coast district that Luis represents, like, picking up Valdez or Seward or something. And um, but there's gonna be yeah, be a domino effect, especially in the rail belt. Um, they'll be interesting. And, and there's I mean, you know
0: at least ten Senate seats up every year, but in 2012, um, if the Senate district changes by some percentage, I forget the exact amount, but if it changes enough, then that seat two-year seat or four-year seat becomes a two-year seat yeah in 2012 it was 17 senate seats were up yeah and in 20, 2002 it was 19.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so you know there's a really good chance that there's gonna be a lot more, more than 10 senators are gonna be yeah, up and yeah. all the reps uh per usual i mean there's and there, the governor which right. is that's not affected but you know it's statewide but there's gonna be so much going on next
1: i mean anchorage is changing there's a lot of reps there they're like James Kaufman, his district voted for Biden. I think Costello's district voted for Biden, Holland's district mm-hmm. voted for Biden. It's kind of changing underneath their feet. No, so that, there's going to be, I, I've, I've brought that up and that's true, but also, um, a lot
0: of those districts voted for, for Dan Sullivan too, mm-hmm. um, which they're was, very, they're race just very, very narrowly of, divided. Yeah. Right. They're, they're not, yeah. they're not as clear. I mean, in and, um, 25 where I was involved last time with, you know, Calvin Shragi beat Mel Gillis. Um, In two thousand eight, that district was a little different because of redistricting. But I mean, Sarah, you know, Sarah Palin, and and that was a big part of it. But you know, John McCain got like that was like six over sixty percent, I think. Yeah. And then this time, Biden wins by like three points.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Anchorage is changing a purple city at this point, and uh, so a lot of those Anchorage seats are going to be, you know, probably really close. And um,
0: were 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 you? I think you were, support, were you supportive of the ranked choice vote, or the ballot measure? Were you I part, did, yeah. Were I you part of that, it. though, or were you just kind
1: of supporting it? I, you know, I did, like, had a public endorsement and... But you were, like, uh, one of the organizers or one of the, the... one of the organizers, no.
0: I've, I, I've told people this. I've voted against it, um, not because I don't think it's a good idea or because I don't think it's valid, has valid merits, but I, my concern still is, is the ranked choice element of when people go to vote... That's such a different way to, you know, so, but I'm, I'm optimistic that the better Alaskans for better elections are staying around and they're going to be educating the public. But my concern still is if people go in there and most people don't pay attention to what's going on in politics or, you know, voting the government. So you go in to vote and you're like looking at these four names and these four things and you're like, what what is this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I it's good that they're not mic dropping after the election and like huge, huge credit to them. Cause there's going to be a huge education effort. I mean, I think like all every campaign that runs in 22 and like we'll have a Senate race and a governor's race, those campaigns are also going to be motivated to educate all voters too. I mean, I think we'll land in a good place and it's not, you know, calculus or anything, but it's going to be a huge shift and it's definitely going to change dramatically change the incentives in terms of running for election. Like I don't, I mean, you know, people like, Chuck Kopp and Jennifer Johnston, who I really respected and respect as legislators, um, you know, like their kind of platform. I think you know how now has Elaine because well, and you mentioned James Kaufman earlier. He he didn't beat Suzanne LaFrance by that much, right? And that's in a
0: Republican type hillside well, district.
1: Well, that district voted for Biden, but yeah, yeah. So yeah.
0: it's it's um, I'm just really curious. In a lot of these races, I think it it obviously depends on who runs. I mean, do you have a Republican? A de- two Republicans, two Democrats, or like a Republican, two Democrats and an independent, or you know, do you have three Republicans? You know, it depends on the district, I guess. But um, some of these are going to be fascinating. Kind of who's who's on the yeah who's on the ballot, yeah, who's in the top top four, yeah. or
1: or if there's even less, sometimes maybe the there's only going to be two or three in the primary, potentially. Right, yeah. I mean, like most elections, you only have two or three people running, and it's generally, you know, if there's like a consensus D and a consensus R, and they run the general, and they advance the primary without any fuss. But now that there's open primaries and a final four slate, it may, there may have been a disincentive for people to file See, earlier. I, I like a top two primary,
0: but I read this book, The Politics Industry, and, and Catherine Jell, she's one of the people that kind of supported this yeah. Um, ranked choice voting they they have a lot of really good rationalization for the top top single primary to the ranked choice voting they 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 want top their thing is top
1: five mm-hmm. but you know we went with four i guess so yeah i mean i think there's a kind of an incremental difference between top four and top five but when you have final two that creates a lot of i think perverse incentives and strategic voting yeah. and the vote gets split in certain ways and you can have really weird outcomes. The book raised a ton of good points about that. You you end up getting, yeah, you end up getting, and California is kind of, I I think there are a lot of elections that have happened in California since they adopted final top two that, that illustrate that, Mm -hmm. the problematic aspect of that.
0: Last thing I want to ask you is that you have a bill regarding the permanent fund. A few people do. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about your approach to it and the, you know, the fund itself and then the dividend. And um, it's like broken record every year with this damn thing, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, I I really want a, a compromise to settle these questions. So, I mean, first of all, we're not, you know, wasting so much time and effort and energy over this year, year after year after year, but most of all, so we make, I think disciplined fiscal decisions now that sets up the next half century of Alaska up for prosperity and future generations. I mean, that's like my overriding principle is Make you know short-term sacrifice for long-term benefit and gain, and as far as the permanent fund goes, that I think that means protecting the permanent fully and having a conservative annual draw. Um, and Do you think the five percent? Some people think it's too much. I yeah. I uh, I think there's there's a good argument that five percent is fine, but from what I have read and understand, five percent you're not going to have any real growth in the fund. You're going to have nominal growth, but no real growth. I personally would totally be on board with a more conservative draw, like 4.75% or 4.5%. And it's, I mean, we're going to get like really wonky, but when you have the five year trailing average, which is how every constitutionalization proposal around the permanent fund, what is being proposed, the, the effective draw for 5% with a, Five-year trailing average is actually much lower than five percent. I'm not sure if that you makes, know because yeah, yeah because of the well, there's also the inflation issue because so. Of inflation. So because of the five-year trailing average, it, it makes the effective draw actually like in like the four two five four point two percent range or something like that. Anyway, like even even though the effective draw is lower than what it looks like at five percent, I still would support like a four point seven five percent draw with a five percent trailing average, which. Like forget all the like financial jargon and gobbledygook. Like basically, what that means is, if you knock down the draw a little bit more, then the fund will have real growth over the long term, which means more prosperity for future generations of Alaskans.
0: Also means more revenues. We would need to cover
1: the correct. It would be it would be hard. It would mean more revenues or cuts, mm-hmm. or most likely both, which I support. Which and uh, you know I think cuts are good, and it's always good to cut it, but
0: it's it's been cut so much in the last several years, and. We just don't see it every year. They they, it's like around the edges. I just don't see, maybe a few hundred, two or three hundred million. Yeah, I I but, mean, I but nothing think, like a billion. I mean, that's no, just, no, no, that's, no, that's just crazy. Not happen.
1: But but no, I mean, like continued downward pressure on the budget. And I mean, I am, in I think some ways more fiscally conservative than, I mean, certainly some of my Democratic colleagues who I really respect, and even some of my Republican colleagues I feel at times, and I don't think like the way we get cuts from here at this point. And in future fiscal years is just sort of slashing line items in the budget, like in some circumstances, sure, that could be appropriate, but like the most intelligent approach to cuts. And also, I think the way that the state can realize the most savings is when you're opening the hood and you're looking at the underlying statutory structure of programs and program delivery and making reforms there. And that's where you start to accrue, you know, five, 10, $20 million Mm -hmm. uh, benefits. So in your, in your bill, or if you had the magic wand, uh, how would you pay the dividend? If uh so so my so I would be supportive of a constitutional dividend, which is also I think some people are surprised when I say that because I yeah I'm
0: a little surprised you yeah a little yeah
1: surprised. I I mean you can only have a dividend if you protect the fund itself, but I would support a dividend as well, um, constitutionalized in dividend. I ultimately think the dividend has been a, a really good and important program for Alaskans. And like the best way to respect and support the dividend is to make sure it's freaking around in 10 or 20 years. And if you spend down the permanent fund, the dividend is gone. There's no dividend in eight or 10 years. And that is just patently irresponsible. And so for people to represent themselves as a supporter of the dividend and then support spending down the permanent fund in a way that will not provide the financial resources to pay a dividend in eight or 10 years or 15 years is counterproductive and, and harmful to the very pro- pro- program people purport to support. Sorry about the soapbox, but, um, my, no, I mean, it's, it's
0: a it's a fair, I, a lot of people don't think, you know, they think oh, I'll just pay these big dividends now, but what happens in
1: five or 10 years? It's crazy that, I mean, the house minority this year proposed a series of amendments that would have, and almost to a member with the exception of, I think, Stephen Bart, they were all supported by the entirety of the house minority that in aggregate, I think would have paid out 8,000 or Ten thousand dollars in PFDs because all the back payments. There are amendments for interest on the back payments. There's the amendment for statutory formula this year, which is thirty-four hundred dollars. Every one of those amendments they voted for yes. If you stack them all together, which is, you're like, talking which is about,
0: like billions of them. What's that, what's ten? I mean a thousand dollar dividend, seven hundred million, right? So, so ten thousand would be seven billion dollars. Yeah,
1: seven. I mean. In in like Which is like which is like almost ten percent of the current fund. And like how much of that is <laughs> like, like true cool. policy belief versus like messaging? I don't know, but I find that very discouraging because were all those amendments to have passed and like there were a lot of yes votes on the board for those amendments, like what would that have done to the permanent fund and what would that have that done to permanent fund well, dividends? And, and you guys even have some full PFD folks in your caucus. It's, it's not a caucus there, line there's slip. a spectrum it's, of opinion and I am a like so I'm a pro PFd person I'm a pro PFd person in a way that's responsible to ensure that that program exists a half century from now so I support constitutionalizing the dividend or would you but, give you have
0: like an amount? In mind uh, when,
1: when I look at all the numbers, when I think about you know how much you could potentially cut the budget beyond where we're at today, when I think about how much revenue we could potentially raise as a state, which I'm probably in like the five to eight hundred million dollar range, I think we can probably cut hundred to 300 million dollars out of the budget if done intelligently and with like a very comprehensive holistic process and uh, when I think about what kind of draw out of the permanent fund seems responsible, which would be I think like a 4.75 percent draw. And it's been a while since I like ran all these numbers and was talking with Ledge Five, but that like leaves you with you could pay a sustainable, constitutionally guaranteed PUMV tied dividend that's like in the I think twelve hundred to fourteen hundred range in present dollars that grows with time yeah. forever. Which is which is you know compared to
0: twenty three hundred or the fifty fifty, it changes. It makes things a lot easier. That that amount. Yeah. Um, you, I've it, never been one to constitute. I've always personally felt. Constitution constitutionalizing an entitlement check is with so many other things well i would
1: but but i see how bad this thing has gotten and, and i think so that might be the only way and the people would take exception to, to the term entitlement check um i mean and, and i i'll just you know, know yeah but anyway. ultimately i understand sure, There's a whole sure. the
0: resources and I, and
1: I believe i believe yeah, in all those yeah. things but
0: ultimately you're you're constitutionalizing the government you're obligating the government to pay the people um a check every every year mm-hmm when there's so many other things that also have to happen like, you know, education and healthcare and, um, pension obligations. And, you know, you have no idea what could happen and, and what if there's a default or well, what happens? Who gets paid first? Totally. So, but, but I, I do, I've kind of come
1: around myself and said, look, I think that that might be the only way to really. And even, even if it. people disagree on ideological or policy grounds or whatever with the dividend, there's, there's just a stark, political and electoral reality that of legislators who are here in Juneau who represent real Alaskans who have elected them to office, there's the uh, common sense would dictate there is no way to settle these questions in a comprehensive way without settling the dividend question in a constitutional manner. Anything you do statutorily can just be ignored or changed. Correct. By another, yeah. So it's, and same goes for the protection of the permanent fund. I mean, I, I, I had no illusions. The passage of SB 26 meant it was protected. And that's the, like, that's the percent of market value. Percent right, of market the, value. It means basically next. means you can't overspend the permanent fund. You can't yeah. use the permanent fund to subsidize your inability to balance a budget.
0: That's well, what that means. I guess it's a Friday. So I'll try to get this up in the next day or two. We'll see what happens Monday, uh, Wednesday, July 1st would be the shutdown. Um, hopefully not. It would be, I'm not saying it should be, but yeah, it would be, yeah. uh, and then you know August, that's going to be I guess the big one. See what happens with this um, this permanent fund
1: question. Yeah, we'll see. You're lucky. You're kind of close. You know, you're a little closer than me. I Anchorage. yeah. I've got outside of Juno legislators. Bert and I have the best commute. In the do state. you uh,
0: fly or do you take a boat?
1: Uh, I take I take the ferry when there are ferries, which despite the photos and paintings were surrounded by an the MEBA office, Marine Engineers Beneficial Association. I to give a
0: big shout out to amoeba for letting me use the, their office for Thank the podcast. Thank you,
1: MEBA, for this great venue. Um, there are barely any ferries anymore. Um, it's crazy. They wanted to give
0: the Malaspina to the Philippines and then the Chiniga and the Fairweather, right? They're going to Ibiza. Yeah. Which I... Saw Sean good Maguire. Spanish accent. Right, I was, you know, I had to, I had to do that. I, had yeah, to, yeah, that's good. Uh, I saw Sean McGuire posted about that, and I, t- I said, hey, I think we should go do some recon and make sure these ferries are uh-huh, being taken yeah. care of. Ground truth, that story. Right, there's no other reason <laughs> other than checking the ferries. <laughs> it's you're funny, people say Ibiza, and then, you know, if, if cause my dad lived, my parents lived in Spain, you know, so it's like for a while my dad was in the Navy, and it's like Barcelona. Yeah. Ibiza.
1: <laughs> You're a muckraker at heart, Jeff. That's great.
0: Gotta, gotta, gotta check on the fairies, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the saddest story ever was the Taku, which I used to ride. Yeah. You know, the India when somebody was getting run
1: aground and uh, scrapped. That video is heartbreaking. I didn't like watching that. I was no. like, I wish they wouldn't have showed that. just felt undignified. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Taku is great. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to render an opinion about what was or was not the right decision, but it was a very versatile ferry it was like the one middle-sized ferry in the fleet that could call on a lot of the villages in southeast it wasn't super big it Had a smaller crew as
0: i think we should do yeah. maybe another
1: podcast sometime just about the ferry uh
0: um, system because i know you have strong thoughts about that and yeah it's okay. such a such a different you know it's a complex issue but um, it's, depressing um, podcast not been, not been great the last couple of years for the for the ferry system well representative jonathan christ tompkins jkt you got like the rbg thing going on right the does somebody else have that in the legislature? Is there somebody else? Uh, gosh, there's AOC. That's Congress, though. I <laughs> um, could have sworn there was somebody else. In it. I'll remember it after the podcast is over. Yeah. But well, sure anyways, thanks for coming right. on. I appreciate it. Are you yeah. sticking around the week for the weekend, or? I'm gonna try to get back to sick if I can. Nice. I'm, I'm yeah. staying. I'm gonna try to do the uh, Salmon Creek Dam hike on Sunday.
1: Oh, nice. So hop it's up gonna up be there. a scorcher. Oh, last thing. I, I didn't.
0: Yeah. Um, I think I've told you this before, but i don't play anymore i need to start but i played the cello for a long time you know yeah i wasn't you play the cello i play the cello i was in the albuquerque youth symphony wow i was yeah i was actually good for you not a bad little cellist yeah i I, I actually rented one from peter's violin shop Uh years ago and i started kind of playing
1: playing again but it's one of those things you got to like do you play still or i've i i was trying to keep it up first couple years out of college like i played in in the symphony in college should i give a holler at ken yeah no I, it's sick so we're gonna okay yeah but um i'm I, at this point just time wise it's not happening well
0: we'll uh maybe sometime in the future get back to that well thanks for coming on the podcast i really yeah. appreciate it and we'll be paying attention to what's going on here in the the next week okay thanks All right, jeff thanks All right, guys if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one
1: Landline.